Yeah, good luck. Yeah, here we are on Friday morning, out looking at the cradle. All right, here we go. Number four. Welcome to the Eric Anders Lang Show, everybody. Brad Klein. Brad, we met last night at dinner. I didn't even know what you did, but I knew after about five words that you'd be a great guest on the podcast. How could you not know what I'm doing? I've been doing it for 40 years. Well, I'm very, I'm an idiot. I live under a rock. See, there you go. This is, this is why you'd be a good guest on the podcast. You're not afraid to throw the shit around. These new media guys, they don't read. They just look at stuff and click. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I have a little clickbait, but uh, I'm kind of old-fashioned, typewriter, uh, whiteout, and uh, um, not right only, but um, I'm kind of an old-fashioned writer. I actually like reading long form, write books, read them, and um, hold over. So you, uh, so we, um, uh, we, we, you know, we're down here in Pioneers at this media event. I don't know when this is actually going to air, but in any event, um, you, you know, we're we're at dinner, we're talking, and um, I mean, you're, would you say that your expertise lies? I mean, you're one of my favorite uh, types of people to interview on the podcast, which is writers. Writers, obviously, you're great at editing. You know what's interesting. Um, and what do you like to write about most? First, I like golf. I'm not a particularly good golfer. So that kind of, there's a compensatory mechanism that works where you sort of inflate your ability to understand the game because you really wish that you could do what you're watching. <laughs> so there's a kind of outsider as insider mentality that develops. And I, I knew right away, I was a caddy. I loved, I caddied in high school. I was 14 years old. And I knew right away I was smarter about the golf course than these idiots who were playing. And I had guys who were in New York, they were the property managers for the Empire State Building, but they couldn't figure out if it was a nine-hole or an 18-hole box to check. And I realized uh, I had it on them. And I knew on the golf course, this is a Five Towns Woodmere Club, and uh, you know they, they had the 150 markers, and a couple of them were like 157 and 162, and I'd never tell anybody, so I had oh. kind of an advantage. And I, I, I just loved being out there. And I've written a lot about it. I, so um, when I was uh, 11 years old, there's a kind of incident, if you will, at Inwood, uh, and, uh, Inwood Country Club. And I'm, I rode my little bicycle up from my house, three miles away, whatever, park at the gate, walk up, go over a, a stone bridge. I didn't know it was the Swilkin Burn Bridge, 18th, walk down the fairway, stand there. And the first time I'd been on a golf course. And uh, I glimpsed it on the way in, in the back of the car to the beach with my parents, but I was fascinated. So I rode out there, walked over the bridge, right side of 18th hole, and uh, I see these guys on the tee, and I hit and the glint of the shaft and the sun, and I was like, I'm watching the ball, and I literally fell in love watching that ball butterfly down right near me, and uh, I can always evoke that feeling and sensibility of the game and my writing from that moment, this kind of real foundational moment. The best thing is, 30, 40 years later or whatever, I took my uh, nine-year-old daughter out there. I said, let me show you where I fell in love with golf. I go out there. And I said, it's right about here. And I look down. There's a plaque. And the plaque says, from this spot. And they put the plaque up since. So that scene for me was like 1965 on the golf course. Now we're 1989. There's a big plaque in the ground. It says, from this spot in 1923, Bobby Jones hit the two-iron and against Cruikshank in the playoff to win the 23 Open. And she looks at me, she says, cool. So literally the spot that I fell in love with golf is the spot from which Bobby Jones hit the two iron in 1923. So that kind of little magic, kind of pixelated kind of stuff in, in your world is uh, always animated me. So I was fascinated by golf, frustrated that I could never play real well. Uh, and I just studied it. And I started reading and I caddied on the tour when I was in graduate school and 
hooked up, so to speak, uh, met Herbert Warren Wind and Lauren Rubenstein and started writing. And uh, I had an academic career for 14 years. I taught uh, political science, wrote a book, nuclear weapons and all this stuff, and was lecturing all over. But I really wanted to be a golf writer. So I kind of transitioned over. And, uh, um, and, and while I was a professor, I was writing these golf columns, and I landed a column on architecture for Golf Week back in uh, 1988. So I was writing this monthly stuff, 1,500 words every month. And I could just write whatever I wanted. And uh, it, it was great. And then um, I got a tenure-track job teaching. I'd already published a book on uh, U.S. nuclear defense strategy, uh, and they said they wanted a second book. So I wrote my first golf book. And uh, I knew that wasn't going to endear me to the, to the university, so I quit. And uh, by then, I had landed a job full-time at Golf Week. So I've been with it ever since. And I spend, I don't sleep well, so I spend all my time in the morning, 5 a.m. with superintendents, hanging out with architects, listening, learning. And um, you just, if you surround yourself with really smart people who love what they're doing, and if you do what you're doing, I think that emanates. And uh, it carries out around you so to the point where it inspires other people, and it also uh, makes them realize that they can trust you to tell you the things they've been thinking about that they don't get a chance to talk about. So that's how I, whatever I know is from, never studied this stuff formally, but I've read a ton and written a ton and just kind of hang out and just walk with superintendents and architects. So, and that's um, what I do. So when you say, uh when you say you spend a lot of time hanging out and walking around, I get up early, walking around with superintendents and architects. I mean, I have multiple questions about that. One is why, right? And I, and I might know why, but, but other people might not. Why do you do that? And two, what, what, I guess if the first question didn't answer, the, what's the second question is, what, what do you get out of it? Well, to me, the most beautiful place in the world is really a golf course early morning and late afternoon and those are the best times to play early first off and last off very so, specifically early morning and late afternoon shadow there's what? a shadow dapples across the fairway and it highlights the contours in full high sun you can't see the contours when it's shadow sh shadow across on a diagonal or you can get to see a lot but um I understand that 90% of what makes a golf course work is invisible underground. And so there's pipe and root structure and soil and water. Right. And um, then there's also the politics of the club and the budgeting. So I like going around with superintendents and show me what's going on. What do you see? And uh, when I cover majors, I've done this for 20-something years at least. Um, when I cover majors, I go out with the maintenance crew at five in the morning and then I, like Shinnecock, I walk the golf course every morning with uh, uh, John Jennings and we walk first tee to 18th green four times that week and it was great in terms of the setup, you see things going on. So you see the golf course as a process of labor and the evolution of grass lines and, and then the superintendents kind of open up in the morning and they talk a little bit about what they're feeling and thinking and how the crew's doing. So you get a feel for the, how the golf course is going to set up. And uh, I like seeing it when I'm not playing. Uh, my playing kind of gets in the way of my seeing a golf course. Mm. And I think that it's very hard to judge a golf course when you're playing it. Uh, for years, I ran the um, ratings program, golf course evaluations program at Golf Week magazine. Why do you roll your eyes at that title? 
I was just trying to think later. of it. Oh, okay. I was just trying to, uh, although, you know, I did it for 29 years, and then I quit this year to join Golf Channel. I was just tired of doing it. It's a, you know, I just needed a change. And uh, it was a lot of hosting, a lot of golf playing, which to me, after four or five days of hosting and socializing, gets a little bit, I, I get antsy. I'd, I'd like to write and read and spend time with uh, insiders. You enjoy, you enjoy your work. I enjoy my work, and I enjoy controlling my time. And uh, when you're hosting events, you don't have control over your time. And the lunches and the dinners go on and on, and uh, you end up drinking too much. And um, just uh, it's socializing to an extent. Uh, and I understand it, because a lot of people play golf to get away, whereas golf is what I do for a living. So when I get away, I want to get away from golf. Right. I mean, I've got it. I like, I wouldn't call it gardening, but I, I like outdoor work uh, on our yard, which doesn't have a lawn, for example. I love reading, I like going for hikes, uh, hanging out with the kids. And uh, so go- I want to get away from golf. So, uh, but when I'm doing it, I'm pretty intent on it and uh, taking notes and thinking about stuff. And um, so um, I, I, when I started the program at Golf Week, uh, the hardest thing I had to get people to do, it's not a criticism, it's just their nature, is to not judge a golf course by how well or how badly they played. It's hard to do. It's hard to it's do. It's hard to separate the two. I've learned to separate them, uh, but it's still hard for me to look at the detailing of a golf course when I'm just trying to make contact and play and struggle with my own swing like any other golfer. But uh, it's a really important thing. You can't, and I... I I think a lot of fascia courses have benefited from the fact that they're fairly receptive and generous and gracious and visible in front of you the first time around, and I think that's helped their ratings, but you don't get any further understanding or appreciation of the, of the golf course the more times you play, because it's really presented there on the surface in order to please you the first few times around. So, You know, sorry to interrupt, we were, we were talking with Gil Hans about this a little bit last night, about how the blind shots are not favorable necessarily to American golfers. They don't necessarily like them. But that said, you, you, if you figure a golf course out on the first walk, it's, there's, the puzzle is gone. Yeah, uh, and I think that some architects have pandered to that. Um, and I think that uh, Doak and Gill and uh, Ben and uh, Corin Crenshaw and other architects, DeVries in particular, have uh, maybe gone quite the other way. They build an awful lot of intrigue and bounce and oddity and uncertainty, which is fine. Uh, the difference is I like to be able to see the craziness that's going to happen, <laughs> whereas if you go, uh, sometimes you can overdo the blindness because then you deprive the golfer of the pleasure of watching the crazy bounces. Uh, I have a simple explanation of golf course architecture. It's what happens when the ball hits the ground. American <laughs> golf is designed for golf in the air. And architecture, going way back to old Tom Morrison, and then with the classicists of Mackenzie and Tillinghast, and all was based on ground game and crazy contour and bumps and rolls, and you had to read the ground game and the contours uh, essentially as if you're putting or chipping or trying to figure it out. And part of the joy of it was you couldn't figure it out because there was all these, there was occasional craziness and uh, unfairness, as they would call it, but <laughs> there's nothing unfair about it. It's just part of the game. How would you define it as not being unfair? How do you, what... what? What, what what leads you to know that for certain? I don't believe in unfairness. I don't think that, well, uh, if, how should I put this? A, a ground game element to me has to have an element of, some element of arbitrariness to it. Sure. Now, if it's coupled with a, 
an irrecoverable hazard, that's different. So um, to me, like if everything points you into the water, you're saying. Well, uh, here's an example of unfair: uh, having uh, out of bounds on one side and a lake on the other, and uh, crazy bounces down the middle. That would be. That would be difficult. Yeah, because now you're combining a number of factors. But, but if, see, I would say that that's not unfair because it treats it's unfair equally to all players. Well, that's true. Yeah. So in that sense, the golf course presents itself as a piece of sculpture landscape. Uh, it's objective. It's sitting there. It's not discriminating. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I generally avoid the word unfair. Um, uh, I think it's reasonable or fun or interesting if it kicks it out in a way that exaggerates the angle of recovery. Uh, the penalty, not necessarily the, the, the drop. Well, the puzzle to it. Yeah, right. it creates a puzzle. It okay. ought to create a puzzle. And when, puzzles aren't always uh, solvable. Beautiful. When did you first realize that architecture, is that, that is your most cherished uh, sort of piece of the golf puzzle that you, that you endear? Architecture, I'm assuming? Or history. Uh, say this again. Um, golf has a lot of facets. Yeah. Uh, is, go- is architecture, is golf course architecture your, your, the facet you're most interested in? Oh, well, I was totally mercenary about it. Uh, when I wanted to be a golf writer, uh, the first thing is I realized there are a thousand people, this was back in the 70s, 80s, there are a thousand people writing about Arnold Palmer and uh, Tom Watson and, uh, and Jack Nicholas, and there were only... There was one or two people writing about architecture. So first, from a standpoint of uh, how do you get your foot in the door, uh, I figured I'd have a better chance that way. But really, is I had a great eye and a memory, and I can remember almost every hole I've seen. Really? Do you have a photographic memory? I guess. Fantastic. <laughs> people always ask me that. But I mean, I, I, I'll sometimes talk about a golf course detail that I haven't seen in 25 years. Really? Uh, and not just famous courses, but... And I can go around once. I do this all the time. I do a lot of work in clubs and uh, lecturing and member education and so on. And if I see a golf course once, I know it better than 80%, 70% of the members that wow. night when I'm giving a talk. So I have a really good uh, – first of all, my, my, I know where north, south, east, and west are. Um, I can tell what time it is from the sun angle. So I have a kind of Boy Scout brain, and it's kind of a – what do they call it? Gyroscopic in terms of twisting imagery. So it's kind of a trick I use all the time when I'm on a golf course and I'll see it for the first time and I haven't seen uh, maybe the back nine, but I've sneaked a look at it on GPS and I'm out with the superintendent and he'll we'll be out there and I'll say, oh, that's, was that the ninth, is that the eighth hole? Oh yeah, yeah. So I kind of orient myself. Right. So I like doing that kind of gyroscopic kind of orientation and I like just looking and kind of clicking on um, an image that I can recall. Right. I also almost never take notes uh, I find they get in the way. Um, Interesting. As a writer, you don't take notes. No. Uh, I might. Memory, do you rely what on What I memory? do is, sorry? Uh, excuse me. Um, hey, Colt, can you check and make sure that we're not going to miss this um, thing? I just want to know when, when we have to be done. Um, but you, you as, as a writer, you don't take notes. Doesn't that, doesn't that, that would seem to, Here's I would what imagine I do. that would impede. No, uh, because I never describe golf holes. Um, a couple of things. Uh, Afterwards or before, I'll get a little checklist from the superintendent on elevation, soil, grass types, acreage, average this, that, and the other. I get a kind of a statistics chart I put together. Right. It helps me. So that, that gets a lot of stuff out of the way. 
uh, on the golf holes, I have found that it's a waste of time to describe a golf hole. And I always laugh when I read these descriptions of other architecture writers who talk about, you know, a, a, they'll talk about a, a 420-yard par-4 that's challenging for the golfer who hits driver six iron to a <laughs> And, like, first of all, you don't know who you're writing to, and everybody's hitting different clubs, so you exclude right. people. But the rule of thumb, really, for golfer. I mean, I've written whole books and never described a single golf hole. It's a, right. it's a waste of time to describe it to the person who's never seen it, and if they've seen it, they'll remember it enough. You can just allude to it. What I convey is feelings that I have when I'm playing. Beautiful. Sensibilities. And I also like to look at the surround and the view sheds through, outside, or across on the interior and kind of capture the sensibility and aesthetic and the material forms and the shapes that you're looking at. That, to me, is more memorable um, than the shot itself. So, can do you? So you sort of, when you said you like to play golf in the morning and the evening, I, 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 it, it made me very excited because, you know, one of the saddest parts about my life now is that I don't do that as much as I did in the beginning. In the beginning, I couldn't afford to play at nine or ten a.m. And now everybody wants to play nice courses at that hour for some fucking reason. I don't know. Oh, I'm talking about 6.37. So. I know. I know. Yeah. And I don't get to do that anymore. You know, and, and now yeah. I don't get to go out and play 14 holes and get shut out by the sun. Those, those are some of the most beautiful memories of my life. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm sad that I don't get to do that as often. So why don't you? I don't know. I, I think part of it is I do a lot. Well, I travel, right? So, I mean, we played number two yesterday. We, we teed off in the dark in the morning. Yeah, but um, in the we, cold, we, in the cold too. We weren't able to play the whole course because yeah. of a one in ten start with a packed tee sheet. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not an awful thing. But I just, I'm, a, I, I'm inspired by the idea that what I take that as is you like to live inside of the photographs that people buy books about, and you write the books about those photograph books that you experience. The, um, the other thing is I find there's way too much emphasis on scoring a full round. Um, there's a rule in editing. It's very useful in life, which is the rule in editing is no one knows what you left out. <laughs> so they only know what's there. And uh, the other, there's a related rule in radio, which is leave them wanting more. So okay. <laughs> uh, a little bit of parsimony really helps. And so if you cut out the ego and just simplify, then you want the composition, because that's all that counts, is, is what's there and the continuity of beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and some brilliant passage that you think is one of the greatest things you've ever written, but it doesn't quite fit, get rid of it or save it. Take it out and save it. Right. Cut and paste it. Uh, so the point is, in golf, I think there's too much emphasis on finishing a round. I think what you ought to do is concentrate on hitting shots, playing holes, walking, looking, um, testing the ground game, yeah. uh, playing shots, really. Yeah. And uh, uh, I think that's... and. That's a fun part of the game. It, I'm not saying don't play rounds, but I, I think you can enjoy playing, you know, alternate shot, Stableford, uh, better ball, um, um, scrambles, and also just go out and play, you know, take five clubs and play five holes. Yeah. Um, some of the most fun rounds I've had uh, last year, I went out with nine clubs, shot my best round of the year, and never had the wrong club. And, uh, it's just you sort of make it work. So you know, and that, it's really interesting. Uh, I've had similar experiences, right? And and the 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 interesting, the most interesting thing about I think what you're saying is that I couldn't be more the type of person to agree with what you're saying. That said, I don't always 
let myself have that kind of fun. Or I, or I go out and play number two. We play 14 holes, 13 holes, and I'm like, ah, I, just, I wanted to experience it as an entire thing. Or, well, I understand that. I mean, it, it, I'm, if someone is at Cypress Point, I wouldn't say go play the front nine and skip the back. <laughs> so, you know, it depends where you are. If you're at, if you're at number two at Pinehurst, you want to play the shot into 18, and you want to have the putt that Payne Stewart had. And, right. So I understand that part. So it, right. this more pertains to golf courses where you're you, – you know, if you're going to be there for a few days yeah. or, or you repeat. And I understand also that those of us in the golf media have access that a lot of people don't. So sure. we have a kind of skewed perception of this. Um, but having said that, there are all sorts of cool experiences about golf courses that I've learned. For example, one of the best walks I ever took was Oakland Hills in Michigan in a rainstorm because I got to watch the drainage patterns. And water flows the same way the golf ball flows Whoa. which is right which is downhill Whoa. so to see the water pooling up and then spilling out was fabulous to emphasize the contours same thing in a light snowstorm or after a light snowstorm not a heavy one but a light snowstorm really exaggerates the contour and form and the verticality of a golf course so there's some really neat times to, fascinating uh, Go out and look at a golf course. I never would have thought that. Do you make coffee in the morning? Let me ask you one question about that coffee you make in the morning. Do you know when it was roasted? If you bought it at the grocery store, it's been stale for months. Sad news, I know. You go ahead and shed a tear. If you bought it at the local cafe, you've probably overpaid for it. Here's the deal. Bixby, B-I-X-B-Y, they cut out our favorite guy. No, our least favorite guy. They cut out the middleman. I mean, the truth is, if you are the middleman, you're rock solid. But we don't, we, since we're not the middlemen, we actually want to get rid of them. We're the men on the outside or the women. Moving on, that wasn't supposed to take that long. They roast it the day you order it and they ship it right from the roaster to your doorstep. Save on the price and save on the freshness. You get more freshness. More freshness, half the price. I don't know what the deal is. Anyway, I've been roasting the facility. I went to the roasting facility the other day, and my man Miles started this really cool company, and it's a high-quality outfit. That's for sure. Um, also, it's like it's like the vice balls of coffee that Jeff wrote that. That's pretty good. I do like that. Um, better coffee, better price, and always free shipping. That's actually a really cool part of it. You get the free shipping. Um so there you go. Check out BixbyCoffee.com. That's B-I-X-B-Y.com. It's going to get delivered to your door. And, uh, you know, once you get the coffee, you'll be awake for it the next time it gets delivered because it's a subscription thing. You know, you get it regularly. You don't have to go to the store for it. So anyway, check it out. BixbyCoffee.com. All right, everybody. Precision Pro. Here's the thing about Precision Pro. They got started with a simple question. Quote, why can't anyone make a quality rangefinder at a reasonable price? I also have this question. That was four years ago, and now Precision Pro Golf makes the NX7 series rangefinder that's been named the best value rangefinder in 2018. That's a big thing. I don't by mygolfspy.com said that. My golf spy. Anyway, their rangefinders contain all the bells and whistles that golfers love without the bloated price that other companies charge. Because to be honest, nobody likes bloating, especially when it comes in your price tag. The NX7 Pro Slope Rangefinder is the number one selling rangefinder on Amazon.com right now. Is that true? Is it the number one? No one's in my house. Colt, Snowball, and Max are all in my house. Is it the number one? Check. Is Precision Pro really the number one selling rangefinder? I don't want to purport false claims. Colt's checking. 
Anyway, that's on sale for $218, and that's $30 off its normal price. Can you believe that? It offers slope-adjusted yardages, pulse vibration technology, which as a human being, I love. I love pulse vibrations, good or bad. Uh, Two-year warranty. Dang, that's two years, man. That's a long time. That's longer than I've ever had a rangefinder. My last one was stolen, so if you have my rangefinder right now, it says Eric Lang on it. You're an asshole. Also, it comes with industry-leading precision care package that includes a free lifetime battery replacement service. A lot of script. I'm almost done, guys. Hang on. Any news, Colt? Still no news. We're waiting. For golfers, confidence is a wonderful thing. Doubt is not. Precision Pro understands that, and it's why their rangefinder is the perfect combo of performance and price. I love combos like that. Oh, my God. NX7 rangefinder is, well, look at all these reviews. Does what I wanted. Love it. Just what I was looking for. Price was right. From Lowell H. Danny B says, I like it. <laughs> We're reading real reviews. Five stars. 781 reviews. Dude, here's the deal. They sent it to me, but I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. We're going to see. We're going to see. Right now, the NX7 Pro is on sale for $30 off at precisionprogolf.com. Two-year warranty, 90-day money-back guarantee, lifetime battery replacement service. Lifetime battery replacement. Whoa, Cadillac Rangefinder with a VW price. I like it. That guy, I want to hang out with. Major Duffer. Let's get Major Duffer on the pod because I want to see this. But the battery replacement service is crazy. Seriously, lifetime battery replacement service. For me. I'm just learning about this. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Guys, sounds like if you don't buy this, you're the idiot. Um, so anyway, ciao for now. Adidas golf shoes, y'all. I've worn lots of shoes since I started playing golf seven years ago, but I haven't found anything that matches Adidas. It's actually very true. Boost, all capitals, folks, B-O-O-S-D. Boost is the best cushioning in the game, and they test all their shoes so that you get the stability you need for the swing that you want or whatever. Whether it's the Tour 360, which is all around a great shoe, or the Adicross Bounce, that's what I like, uh, I typically wear, well, I like the Addy Pure, y'all, because they're classy as fuck. And I also like the, uh, I like the Crossknit Boost, y'all. It's an older model, but they look kind of fly. Everyone thinks I'm wearing running shoes on the course, but no, I've got stability and I've got little nubs to keep me in check when I over-rotate with the big stick. Um, everything that they make is so versatile and comfortable, but most importantly, they're all built to perform on the course. Visit adidas.com and click on the golf section or visit your local retailer. <laughs> Maybe just go online, y'all. Who wants to go to a local retailer? Let's face it. To find the pair that's right for you. You can also follow Adidas Golf on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook for all the latest news and releases. Check it out. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. Now, Brad, I'm curious if you can, as a writer, explain our current setting that we're in. Where are we? Uh, we're at Pinehurst, uh, we're at uh, the f- clubhouse, and we're in the Donald Ross Grill Room, and we are overlooking the uh, putting course here and uh, the newly opened cradle, which is the nine-hole short course, and the uh, end, beginning and end of the number four course, and the number two is right to our left. We're here 
where golf resort business started in 1895. Uh, it was a town that was created out of nothing by uh, James Tufts, who was a soda fountain manufacturer in Boston and was trying to do good things and thought that the way to cure tuberculosis was to bring people down to the south in the fresh air, and then they found out that tuberculosis is communicable, so they banned tuberculars, uh, and they had a scramble to build a healthy resort, and they found people playing golf, and then uh, um, Tufts was being instructed at the time by a new golf professional at Oakley Country Club who had just come over from Scotland by the name of Donald Ross, and he invited him down, and Ross set up shop in what's now the town uh, in uh, uh, the winter of 1899, and by then, they had already had a land plan that was laid out, kind of a neat New England style. Can I just interrupt style. you for one second? Yeah. Those of you listening, he's not reading. This is just your, your you have an encyclopedic brain. I just want to point that out. You're, you're sort of, uh, you're like a beautiful mind. Keep going. Uh, they had a land plan that had been laid out by uh, the, the design firm of Frederick Law Olmsted, who was at the time the leading landscape architect. It was, also, it was actually done by his associate, Warren Manning, who became the landscape contractor and did all the planning and planting and road building uh, for, the, for the Pinehurst area for the next 20, 30 years. And um, they built a town around the golf course, uh, golf courses, and it evolved uh, starting in the late uh, 1899 or so. And they ended up with four Donald Ross courses. And um, they had the... How, what, would, would, uh, the four, the, the multitude of courses seems incredible to me, right? It, it exists in a couple other places in, in America and in the world. But at that time, was that audacious? Or was that just sort of like, yeah, of course you would do that? Um, I don't think they had a plan. What they found... They're on a railway line here. So right. the railway line was really good. You could get to, you can get, in, in, in 1900, you could get from New York to Pinehurst in about 24 hours. Right. So it was a... Uh, That's a long trip, actually. Well, not then it wasn't. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't much earlier. I was just reading a biography of Frederick Law Olmsted in 1870. It took him a month to go from New York to uh, California. Uh, designer of Central Park. Central Park. Prospect Park, and um, yeah, and um, so if it took you a month to go from New York to Canada, you had to go around right. across Nicaragua or down to Cape Dang. South America. That sounds like a fun trip to reenact. So the railway trips were, uh, by you know, they were modern, they were like, um, you know, internet speed by comparison. Right, right. <laughs> Anyway, can you on just, a railway can you, line. Can you just actually now, you're saying, talk about something that's really interesting to me, it's, it's Scotland, you know, the trains uh, begat golf basically train train travel brought about uh golf as a tourist uh travel exercise can you did that exist in america as well can you talk a little bit about overview well in scotland you had remote links courses uh dornick montrose st andrews uh, but they didn't connect to major population centers until the railway lines came and then that that brought in a lot of commerce, trade, and development, and uh, resort industry came along um, and e expedited everything. Uh, in the United States, the um, first of all, golf wasn't nearly as developed at the time. Uh, the first golf course was really established late 19th century. 
Yeah, it's like 1890. Yeah. So we're talking, this is five years into golf bakes it to America. And it was a strange game out here. There was like a primitive nine-hole golf course. You look at the old, uh, here at Pinehurst, if you look at the uh, the routings, they, you know, 120, 30-yard hole crossovers, there were no rules for anything. <laughs> but it became popular. And uh, the biggest thing, the, the most important thing about golf, uh, about the golf industry in the South is there was no air conditioning until like 1920. Uh-huh. So if you lived in the North and it got hot... Well, if you lived, uh, I'm sorry, if you lived in the uh, south and it got hot, you wanted to go north, and if you lived in the north and it got cold, you could go south. Right. So air conditioning and home heating, all that stuff. Right. So um, uh, there were these escapes, and uh, golf proved very accessible here because of the railway line, and people started coming down south, and uh, in those days, cities were horrible places in terms of dirt and grime and you know sewer and uh, a lot of fighting and murders and, yeah, shit, and typhoid that? and dysentery yeah sure yeah. so uh public sanitation so people needed to get away and there was also growing middle class and you had income and uh, you had the ability to um explore and travel a little bit um and the train expedited everything so uh what you had is a, a big tr- move uh toward the southeast coast and ultimately to florida mm. And the Florida trains uh, came really by 1920. What's interesting is the patterns of Florida golf development exactly mirror the train lines. So on the east coast of Florida, Vero Beach, all the way down to Jupiter, it's all east coast residents. You go to the west coast from Tampa down to um, Naples, it's all west it's all Midwest, people from Cincinnati, St. Louis, Detroit. Right. Even to this day, actually. Oh, sure. Actually. Those patterns were set up just by the train lines. So let's go back to, um, let's go back to, well, a little bit about Donald Ross. You, you mentioned Dornick, and I think, I don't, I didn't, I, I don't know a lot. So I was surprised to hear Ross was from Dornick. I had just been there a couple of weeks ago, and I, I fell in love, obviously. And, you know, he, he was very instrumental early on in bringing golf to America in a way that was attractive. Uh, uh, Donald Ross was born in uh, Darnick in 1872 and um, lived in a very simple family house with a lot of people crammed into a small space. His father was a mason who actually came over to the United States to help, among other things, build the uh, Capitol building in Albany, New York. Uh, And Ross was uh, trained as a carpenter, a woodworker, uh, and uh, he lived right down the street from this golf course on on the links called Darnick Golf Club. Uh, and started playing, and uh, apparently was smitten by the game, left high school, left before he got to high school, actually, and uh, caddied and apprenticed and then played. And then um, when uh, old Tom Morris came to uh, redesign the golf course, uh, he kind of walked along and was fascinated by it. And uh, by 1892 or three, when he was 21, 22 years old, uh, Ross was uh, an apprentice to old Tom Morris at St. Andrews, where he was uh, learned how to make clubs and uh, learned how to be a greenkeeper and how to be a golf, well, yeah, golf professional, I suppose, but mainly greenkeeper and club maker. And he spent a couple of years there and then came back and set up uh, as the pro and greenkeeper at Dornick, where he was from 1896, so he was 24, 25 years old. And uh, in those days, it was a different golf course. So I'm... Uh, I'm a member of Dornick. I've been playing there since 1975. Whoa. You've got to be a little careful because people who go over there say, oh, I see the inspiration. These holes look just like Pioneers. Well, a lot of what's the current golf course 
didn't exist till the 1940s. So the Ross layout, or the Ross course that he knew, he left in uh, 1890, uh, in uh, March of 1899. He came over after, it was a visit from a professor from Harvard, Robert Wilson, who invited him. They were looking for a golf pro at Oakley Country Club. And Ross went over uh, at the age of um, 26 or so. Um, well, that's young. 27. Um, at this 26. point, he's already got some stature. A little bit. Uh, had he, had he, play, he played in the Open, didn't he? We'll get that. This is later. Yeah, later. Right. Uh, so he's 26, comes over to the United States, sets up as a golf pro at Oakley, lands a client named James Tufts, who's the big soda fountain magnate. He says, you know, I'm, I just bought, bought 10,000 acres, whatever, in, in the Sandhills, and why don't you come down? And be my golf pro. He said, okay, fine. So that was his winter. He started coming down here in 1899 and then and, f- stayed 45 years. And hang on, golf pro then doesn't mean what it means now. No. Gol- golf pro then meant you can't come in the clubhouse. You're basically, oh, yeah. you're, 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 you're probably more closer to a superintendent now in some, as far as status, as far as class. I would say a greenkeeper. A greenkeeper <laughs> Not even sure. a superintendent. Right, okay. sorry. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, uh, he probably could, the, 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 the playing pros couldn't go in the clubhouse. He might have been able to. In those days, the clubhouse was essentially a small ramshackle building just uh, by the, what's now the, uh, the pro shop. Interestingly, given their sense of history, uh, Pinehurst Company now is building a halfway house uh, that's going to conjoin uh, the uh, tenth hole on the number two course with the ninth hole on number four, and the shape and design of that building is exactly the same as the old Pinehurst Clubhouse from 1895. Oh, so that's cool. They're really cool about getting that, is that retro cool. stuff. Anyway, Ross uh, set up shop here and uh, started, he knew grasses, I guess, and he knew soils, and uh, he had a budget to work with, and uh, it's sandy here. That's the key to golf in Pinehurst. That's probably the biggest development, actually. It's just it's sandy soil, so any right. idiot can drain it. <laughs> and uh, the water just percolates right through. You don't need bunker liners. You don't need any of the fancy stuff. It just percolates for the most part right through. So right. Uh, then Ross became whatever pros did then, which was uh, clean clubs and service Mrs. McGillicuddy's uh, you know, needs on the, the, the various tournaments and uh, build a golf hole here and there and um, so, so clean. So you're, you're playing it down, but I mean, Don Ross is one of the uh, pillars of the game as far as its transition into what it is in America. Yeah, but not in 1899 it wasn't. In when, what, what year was, did that happen? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's an evolution. Uh. So what happens is this place starts expanding. They're taking on, uh, they're building the Carolina Hotel. They've got the Holly Inn now. You know, the Holly Inn was first with 20 rooms. Then the Carolina has 150 rooms. Let me jump. I know we have to finish soon because I don't want you to finish your job obligation with uh, the folks here at Pinehurst today in 2018. But... At what point does Donald, am I wrong, does Donald Ross at some point in his life become uh, a, a golf version of uh, Thomas Kane, of Citizen Kane? Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, from 1919 to 1931, uh, eight U.S. Opens were held on Donald Ross courses. So, so that's so at, pretty cool. So at that point, he he's, uh, has his own pilot. What's he doing? How does he live his life at that point? He never flew. Um, Wait, he was afraid of flying? Uh, didn't really exist. Well, he didn't travel that way. I, uh-huh. I, um, here's what happens. He starts small and gets big. So um, he's the golf pro at Oakley. Then he moves to Essex County Club. He's playing in tournaments. His brother wins the U.S. Open, Alex Smith. I think Philly 
Country Club, uh, 1911 maybe. Ross plays in uh, six or seven U.S. Opens. He wins the North-South. He won the Mass Amateur Mass Open. He goes and plays in the 1910 British Open, finishes 10th place, at which point he has already left for a highfalutin place called the Essex County Club, starts getting clients, starts building up, designing, and then he hires his first associates in 1916. He hires Walter Hatch and J.B. McGovern, sets up shop here with an office above the pro shop, and now he's got a client base because all these wealthy people are coming in and out of the hotel. And, uh, you know, William Phones from Oakmont, and all these people bring him jobs. So right. really by right after with the golf boom, uh, golf didn't really catch on as a major leisure enterprise till after World War One. In America? In the United States. But in uh, Scotland, it was much earlier. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, it was public, accessible. It was a daily, a completely different client base. Sure. You know, in 1930, as a number, there were 4,000 private clubs in the United States and 500 public courses. Wow. And it was totally overwhelmingly a private game. That's sad. So uh, it became more of a public game here after World War II. But Ross had a great client base, uh, and he had a very good travel schedule, and he had a very methodical way of working. He kind of, in effect, mass-produced golf courses by his design technique, which was to go in the field, take detailed notes, send them to his civil engineer, Walter Irving Johnson, who became his uh, plan guy, hired him in uh, October 1920. So now he's got three guys working for him. He's got Walter Hatch. Uh, J.B. McGovern, Walter Johnson, he hires uh, Secretary Eric Nelson, and he keeps him for 20 years. Right. And he's traveling trains all the time. So by the tr 1920, he's building, designing and building 20% of all courses in the United States. And the what? Other thing, yeah. Uh, and um, it's interesting, the guys on Golf Club Atlas always think that, oh, architects, you know, they should spend their time. And uh, they criticize architects today who don't spend enough time on a golf course. Well, Ross did 400 golf courses third of them he never saw. Uh, his Whoa. associates did it. Maybe a third of them he saw twice, and a third of them he kind of paid attention to. So he had a method of design, construction specifications, uh, and handing it over to builders and uneven quality, but some of them worked out real well, and his reputation was such that by, uh, I think it was 1919 was his, I probably got this wrong, but 1919 was his first U.S. Open course, Brayburn. Oh. And then there's a whole sequence of them through 1931 where I don't know, seven or eight out of 13 U.S. Opens are held on Donald Ross courses. So that's pretty uh, cool. You talked about the U.S. Open. Let's switch gears for a second. Um, I had the privilege of being in the media center this year at the Masters. Um, there were a lot of amazing parts to it. The most amazing for me was the celebration of the, uh, the, the media man and, and, and how at that time and, and still at this time but differently, Johnny, Johnny Miller just quit his job, right? I mean, th at that time, the media man was the only way golf was experienced by, all over the world. And, and whether or not that was pro golf or, you know, if you're talking about the experience of being on a golf course at sunrise or sunset, how do you, uh, you know, how do you take that on your jacket when you go out and you're the writer? You know, I mean, what does that... And, and also, maybe you want to tie in a story about your mentor. I mean, th this is just such a beautiful tradition that you're a part of, and that um, I don't think I don't think we, especially in people in my generation, put enough um, you know value on your role. The uh, first of all, Augusta does a fab Augusta National does a fabulous job honoring the tradition of journalism, writers. Um, 
and um, Herbert Warren Wind in particular, who was my mentor. But um, the, the first thing is there's an old adage about the smaller the ball, the better the writing. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I don't understand. It's a, that's the adage. The smaller uh, the, the ball, smaller the, ball the, greater the, the greater the quality of the writing. The best sports writing is golf. Uh, and the, as the ball gets bigger, the, the writing gets clumsier. I don't know why that I don't, is. I, are you saying the, the ball? Oh, the ball. You're, you're, I was like, the golf ball changed size? Oh, no, I, see, I see. I see. Basketball writing. So marbles must be great writers. Maybe marbles. if you could find right, them. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I'm apologizing. It's okay. It's okay. Snarky comments are fine. <laughs> I, you're, I not, you're not. It. You're not afraid of them. No. The, uh, so that's. But I, I really think part of the beauty of golf is that it's there's no clock. It's timeless and it's all individual psychology. And so the best writers made that and the intrigue and the uncertainty part of their writing. The other thing that's great about golf is it's the least specified of all playing fields. The only, there's only one rule in the entire rule book about the playing field, which is that the hole you're playing to is four and a quarter inches across. Yes. There's no other rule. Every other playing field is highly specified, 90 feet, 60 feet, 6 inches, goal posts, the hockey rink, all that stuff. So it's the most varied playing field, the most diverse, and it's also the biggest, so it's the hardest to cover from the standpoint of the electronic media. Uh, both radio and television in particular. Yeah, there's no sport that takes over 100 acres with hundreds of players. No, no. And, uh, you know, most of what you watch on TV is actually a production put together quickly uh, by very uh, gifted people in the production truck who assemble the imagery so it looks like a coherent narrative. But if you're <laughs> at a golf event, it's notoriously difficult to get the sense of it. So the good yeah. writers could convey a sensibility about the overall feel or about one particular player. And, and having uh, them themselves only seen a small portion of the wheel. Yeah, but they accompanied uh, that one play. You know, Grantland Rice was uh, Bobby Jones's personal scribe and walked every hole with him and wrote the famous book with him in 1930 and, um, after he won the Grand Slam. And uh, so there was always a close association with writers and golfers. Uh, the time involved, the kind of hanging out, uh, the Pinecrest Inn here was a famous place where writers... Um, uh, Dick Taylor, for example, who started golf, um, uh, what's it called, Golf World, mm. uh, was there. And um, so there's always a long association in golf between writers hanging out with uh, players and forming relationships. Marino, Paracenzo, and Arnold Palmer, for example, for many, many years. Um, was that sort of like uh, in the same way that like a caddy at a private club has their guy, has their member? Yeah. That's a, great, that's a great analogy, yeah. But now they're on trains together or at oh. the same hotels. What? Uh, they were, became friends, the writer and the player. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now it's much more like, Tiger, can I get a minute? And well, it's, it. no, it's, uh, you've got to go to his agent to see if you can. You've got to go to <laughs> Lee, Lee Steinberg to get, an, Mark. To get Mark Steinberg to get a minute, yeah. So, and, and then the media guys, I mean, uh, the players all have coaches and they all have scripts and uh, carefully <laughs> calibrated statements that they make. So when you talk to them, it's, it feels like it's coming out of a, um, you know, a script. But you saw the old, it's like a Kellogg's ad. But you saw the old world. Saw some of it, yeah. yeah. It what, was much so, more spontaneous. Yeah, you know, Herbert Moore and Wind, contextualize him for people who don't know. Herbert Moore and Wind was a, a, a sports writer who loved literature. Um, he was a... Came from the Cambridge area, uh, from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, educated at um, uh, Yale. Uh, taught comparative literature. Had a master's degree. And uh, 
loved sports, and he always wanted, and he loved music and literature, and he taught literature courses at Yale part-time, and uh, became the best golf writer. He also was equally renowned for hockey and tennis writing. Hmm. Uh, and uh, old-fashioned guy, he was uh, the first uh, golf writer for the, when Sports Illustrated started in uh, 1954, he was their golf writer. Uh, but he had a certain temperament. He, was, he used to say it took him a thousand words to clear his throat, and he could never meet a deadline. So, you know, I used to, in the 70s, I used to, 60s and 70s, I used to read about majors. The U.S. Open, his dispatch about the U.S. Open would show up in August. <laughs> and uh, he was writing, he would bury the winner in the, you know, the 19th paragraph. It didn't, he never got to it. So he told long-winded stories. He wrote... My still, the greatest story I ever read from Herb Wind was uh, he wrote a 70-page article in New Yorker about the history of field goal kicking. The history of field goal kicking. 70 pages in the New Yorker. Now, but you're, you're, you're sort of burying the lead a bit on what he's most famous for, coining a term that every golfer on planet Earth knows. Yeah, Amen Corner. Uh, and it comes from a jazz song, uh, something about... Uh, and it, it characterizes the... Uh, complexity and the demands of a holes 11, 12, 13 uh, down the back nine at Augusta National. And, uh, and he, for Augusta to actually um, adopt this phrase is huge. I don't think people realize that. Augusta would maybe just as well have banished him like, like McCord. Yeah, the difference is that, uh, and I think it's a bit of a criticism. If you go back, I, I knew Herb really well. I spent a lot of time with him. I met him at the Open in 79 at Inverness. We spent a lot of time. I have a lot of letters from him. I almost, I was, at one point I was going to write his biography, but I couldn't find a publisher. But he had tremendous respect. Um, he's, uh, and he would travel uh, when he, it's his article, North to the Links of Dornick in the, the New Yorker in 1964, that kind of discovered, so to speak, or uncovered Dornick, Royal Dornick for the American public. It's all coming full circle here. You being a member, Ross being the pro. And so the key about Herb Wynn is he was a gentleman. Um, and um, he was, uh, he never uttered a critical word about anybody in print. And by modern standards, that doesn't work. <laughs> it was very referential, very uh, couched in these big, not syrupy, but um, uh, respectful tones. And so he was perfectly suited to the culture of, uh, Augusta National, because he would never take pot shots, say, at the goofy green jackets or uh, the, uh, the, you know, how, uh, how much fat is in those pimento cheese sandwiches or anything like that. He wouldn't, yeah. he wouldn't take cheap shots. Uh, it was always honored, respectful, and he was, um, actually, I had breakfast with him once at the clubhouse at Augusta, uh, and so he was, you know, welcome there. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't part of the well, modern they, media. They, they, Augusta and the Masters were one of the first few places that recognized well how much they needed the media because at the time they were starting a crazy new idea which was a non-US open they were starting a tournament that people you know i mean it exactly. was a crazy idea they were capturing the writers as they came up from spring training so the famous um, you know they the, the schedule was that the masters was always just before opening day of baseball and spring training the writers broke took the trains up stopped at augusta for the week masters they got they, was that was that an element of the scheduling? Absolutely. Was, was writer availability? It was a sports avail. They were fitting into the sports calendar of the day. For the first Masters in 1934, I think it was. And is that um, uh, I'm blanking, Chairman? Um, that would have been Cliff Roberts. Cliff Roberts. That was yeah. his design. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. yeah. 
they knew what they were doing. Uh, and they had very good uh, accommodations. They had, yeah. And they always have. And the press tent there is like one of the most honored places. It's like, uh, it's like I, I was at the old Montreal Forum uh, Ice Hockey Palace, and it was like that. It was this uh, incredible temple uh, with the rows and sitting down and overlooking and fantastic food and media access and transcripts, all that stuff. They've always provided it. They're by far the best tournament to cover. Uh, to cover. Uh, and I, the, the one that pandered the most to writers. Pandered. Uh, pandered is the wrong word. Pandered accommodated and, them. Pandered and, to some extent, uh, terrified. Well, you can't, uh, you, you, you know, like Warren, wind was on the right side of it, but if you ever were on the wrong side, you weren't coming back. Yeah, yeah. Shrug. Um, they also made, uh, one of the keys is they also had a lottery every year for the writers. Uh, Have you ever played Augusta? First time I covered the Masters in 88. Um, 87, when Larry Mice chipped in, 87. I won, I was one of the 20 winners, and I played the next your, day. Your first year covering the Masters? First, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so, crazy. I mean, that, it was kind of cool. And, um, you know, you get, all you, when you get out there, all you can think about is trying to not three putt. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they, they do a very good job, and I don't mean that in a, in a dismissive way. I think they understand the schedule and time. Uh, needed. They make people available at the moment. They're you know they're hard to get onto. They don't um, betray a lot of information. Uh, they're not into media manipulation. You no. know, if they have news about uh, the women's amateur event, you find out on the Wednesday of the Masters week. You don't find out the week before. So, so um, we have to go to breakfast now with the with the uh, the folks here at Pinehurst. Can you, in closing, sum up? <laughs> I apologize for this question. Sum up golf, your feelings about golf, why you play, what do you look for, what do you do? Um, it's, um, if, you, if you were to design a game that was uh, incompatible with modern culture, it would look exactly like golf. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it takes up a lot of land. It takes up a lot of time. It's very frustrating. Um, there's no carryover from one success to the next. Uh, and it's outdoors. That's as, that's as perfectly antithetical to modern life as you can get. That's why I like it. Um, and uh, I've been lucky enough to have been able to express this stuff first for Golf Week, now for the Golf Channel and Golf Advisor. And um, I think a lot of people get it. May, they, a lot of people may, may not be able to articulate it the same way, but their sensibility viscerally is that they really get, it's really neat to be out here and to test themselves. And you can be 45 or, or 75 or 15 and just you have your goals and you're trying to get the ball to a certain point and you measure your progress or your lack of <laughs> that way and um, it's, it's a unique uh, measuring stick of your own physical and mental uh, strengths and limits mm. and, I don't, and there's no other game like it and um, it's pretty cool thanks for hanging out with us great uh, any questions for me in closing um well, there's lots, but, uh, you know, it's nice to open up a relationship, and uh, I'm sure we'll uh, keep talking and uh, have fun here, as everyone does at, at Pinehurst. I agree. We have a lot in common, so I'm looking forward to spending the day together. Yeah. We're going to go play number four, everybody. Have a great uh, rest of the day, and um, talk to you soon. Snowball says goodbye. What do you do with Snowball when you're playing? He just what walks along. Know? He just he, He's a golf dog. I wish we were playing in the same group. That's fucking ridiculous. You're ahead of us. I'm, I'm yeah. a cripple today. So I'm going to be hardly swinging. But. Yeah. Well, come and hang out then. We're going to, Snowball's going to go for a walk. He, he's a good golf dog. 
He doesn't bark. He doesn't chase the ball. He just sits. That's perfect. All right, let's go get some breakfast.